You're listening to Rates and Lanes with Rico Mohammed. This is the show where we improve your knowledge of the freight market, improve your bottom line, and improve the transportation industry as a whole. We're talking rates and lanes. Let's move on down the audio road. Good evening, everyone. This is Rico Mohammed coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia. On the Rates and Lanes podcast, we have our special guest, Mr. Hank Seaton, is going to be joining us tonight for his monthly visit with us on the Rates and Lanes podcast, and we'll get to Hank in just one second. So if you have any questions that concern or deal with anything, all things transportation law, whether it be contracts, um, maybe some different negotiation tactics and contracts, or anything like that that you want to bounce off of an industry expert, Tonight, you will have your opportunity to speak to someone, not just lunch counter banter. You will actually have an opportunity to talk to a real professional, Mr. Hank Seaton. So if you want to go ahead and get in line, you can go ahead and press number one to get into the queue. We'll get your call screened, and we will get you right up to speak to Hank. But with no further ado, we're going to start off tonight in our normal fashion, and we're going to give you the update from the DAT trend lines for this week. And the headlines for this week, the uh, December 17th through the 13th, capacity pressures pressures eased last week and load-to-truck ratios dropped for all equipment types. And rates dipped one cent for vans and flatbeds due to declining fuel surcharge, while reefers lost six cents per mile week over week. Let's go and dig a little deeper into these numbers. For the U.S. van report for the week of December 7th through the 13th, van freight availability lost 3.1% last week and truckload capacity added 24%. As holiday freight has already been delivered, the national average load-to-truck ratio for vans dropped 22% from 4.5 to 3.5 loads per truck, which is relatively strong for this season. November van ratio up 22%, the national ratio averaged 3.5 for vans in November, a 22% increase compared to October, and 37% above the level of November of 2013. Both low post and truck post declined compared to October, but increased on a year-over-year basis. And for the U.S. van rates for the week of December 17th through the 13th, the national average rate for vans dropped one cent last week due to the decline of the fuel surcharge. Demand continues to be strong for the season, and rates remain elevated. November rates hit $2.05 on average. The monthly average van rate achieved an off-season peak in November at $2.05 per mile, while 2000 including the fuel surcharge. Compared to the same month in 2013, van rates were up 9.6%. Um, our trip around the country will show us rates on average uh, coming out of Philadelphia, averaging out at $1.93 per mile on dry van. Out of Atlanta, Georgia, averaging $2.08 per mile. Chicago, Illinois comes in at an average of $2.18 per mile. Dallas, Texas shows $1.78, and Los Angeles, California, rounds us out at $2.34 per mile. U.S. flatbed demand. <clears throat> flatbed load availability lost 6.4% last week, and truck load capacity increased 24%, resulting in a 25% decline in the load-to-truck ratio from 18.2 to 13.8 loads per truck as a national average. Flatbed ratio was down 25%. Low volume declined 34% for flatbeds in November compared to October, and capacity fell 13%, yielding that 25% decline in the load-to-truck ratio month over month. The ratio rose 46% compared to November of 2013, however, due to the increased demand. U.S. flatbed rates for the 7th through the 13th, flatbed rates dipped one cent to $2.32 per mile last week due to the declining fuel surcharge when it's typically a slow season for flatbeds, but rates have remained strong. 
The national average rate for flatbeds fell four cents, one point seven percent in November, to two dollars and thirty one cents compared to November of twenty thirteen. However, flatbed rates rose twenty one cents per uh, twenty one cents per mile. That's a ten percent gain. The uh, average across the country, uh, let's see, Harrisburg checks in at $3.96 per mile on average. Atlanta shows a $2.59 on average. Rock Island shows $3 per mile on average. Texas shows $2.69 on average. And Phoenix rouses out at $2.07 per mile on average. Moving right along jumping over into the U.S. reefer demand. Demand for reefers declined 6.4% last week and capacity yielded 19%, resulting in a 24% decline in the load-to-truck ratio. The previous week's high of 12.6% dropped 23% to a more typical season, seasonal level of 9.7 loads to truck. Reefer capacity fell 19% in November, while load availability rose 8.4% compared to October, boosting the average load-to-truck ratio 34% to 11. Compared to November of 2013, the ratio rose 25%. And U.S. reefer rates for December 17th through the 13th, the national average rate declined six cents for reefers last week to two dollars and thirty-five cents per mile. Demand ebbed after Thanksgiving, but it may rebound briefly before Christmas. Before Christmas, reefer rates rose nine cents in November to a national average of two dollars thirty-seven cents per mile, the highest monthly average since June compared to November of 2013. Rates rose 34 cents year over year. That's a 17% increase on reefer rates. And around the country, rates show averaging in coming out of Elizabeth, New Jersey, $2.19 per mile on average. Lakeland, Florida checks in with a $1.62 per mile average. Green Bay, Wisconsin showing $3.14 per mile on average. McAllen, Texas, $1.88 per mile on average. And Fresno, California, checks, rounds out the reefer rate report for this week at $2.26 per mile on average. Uh, real quickly, we will take a look at the USDA fruit and vegetable truck rate report. Just going to try to tap the hot, the hot market for the USD, USDA reports. And starting to show some uh, movement at the Mexico crossing through Nogales, Arizona, showing a slight shortage. The central Joaquin Valley in California shows a slight shortage. South District California is showing a slight shortage. San Luis Valley, Colorado is showing a shortage. Upper Valley Twin Falls, Burley District, Idaho is showing a shortage. Idaho and Merrill County, Oregon is showing a shortage. Minnesota and North Dakota is showing a shortage for trucks. Arasook uh, County, Maine is showing a slight shortage. Michigan is showing a shortage. This report is getting full. Nebraska is showing a shortage. New York Onions is showing a uh, movement in New York Onions. They're showing that they have a shortage of trucks. And rounding out the report, Columbia Basin, Washington is showing a shortage. Yakima Valley, uh, Washington is showing a shortage as well. And so with that said, no further ado, we would like to bring on our esteemed guest, transportation, transportation attorney, Mr. Hank Seaton. Hank, are you there? I'm here. Good evening. Good evening, Hank. What's been going on new with you this, this or since the last time we checked in? Well, it seems like uh, the FMCSA has uh, been rather busy. They've got uh, uh, several new rulemakings uh, uh, that they're talking about. I think one that may be of interest is the uh, 
what they call reg neg, which is a, a negotiated rulemaking on uh, the new uh, uh, driver entry requirements. Uh, not sure what will emanate from that, but they're going to have a try to negotiate a settlement to a problem that's uh, been lurking around for at least five to ten years, which is uh, what are we going to do to increase uh, the number of drivers and get them taught in the proper way to uh, drive a commercial motor vehicle. And about that, uh, reasonable people disagree. Uh, I think it'll be interesting to see what can emanate from that uh, that group and who'll be on that group. So that's, that's one topic we might talk about. Uh, there are others. I think everyone is uh, very happy to see the uh, the end, at least for a short period of time, of the 34-hour restart uh, and hidden in uh, what they call, I guess, the Cromnibus Bill uh, was a provision that the HOS Coalition has been fighting for for years to do away with the restart. We don't have a complete victory. The agency has a very short time to do some kind of study to prove that the restart uh, has a positive effect on uh, on fatigue, and uh, uh, they've got uh, a mountain to climb to prove that, but at least it's a Christmas present to uh, the trucking industry that that, uh, uh, that, that came down, and then uh, there are a number of uh, other issues. Uh, they have put on the table this idea of increasing the amount of insurance that uh, motor carriers are required to have. Uh, we thought there'd be a rule on the street on October 22nd, and instead of putting a rule on the street, they have said, well, we're going to have a notice of uh, uh, advanced publication. You guys can all submit your comments into the website and consider all the comments. Well, I'm not sure that'll be very effective. Uh, they have asked 24 uh, rather pointed questions, and uh, I gather a lot of the trade associations will uh, try to come forth with some uh, uh, reasonable response. Ultimately, they have to show that there's a cost-benefit of raising the cost of insurance. And we're struggling with trying to determine uh, if they double the amount of liability insurance, what will that do to uh, uh, small carriers in terms of premium dollars? And unfortunately, the insurance agents and uh, uh, underwriters are not very helpful. Uh, their predictions are all over the lot. I've got uh, uh, some thoughts about it that, uh, that I might share, but that could substantially increase the the cost of, uh, of operations, particularly for small carriers. I think the industry may very well be divided on the advisability of increasing the amount of the uh, uh, minimum currently at uh, 750 but most carriers have about a million dollars worth of insurance. Whether it'll go to billion five, two, is anybody's guess. So that's just uh, uh, three issues that we're looking at. Uh, I guess probably a fourth and uh, one of the most significant ones will be now that uh, the Senate is changing hands in January. Will Congress have the uh, the will or will industry uh, uh, all get on the same page to encourage a uh, you know, legislative oversight over the use of SMS methodology to uh, identify carriers as bad actors? I think. Basically, all the constituents now agree that SMS methodology is 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 unfair and inadequate reflection of of uh, of carriers, the susceptibility to accidents, and it has a penal effect, particularly in in, in lawsuits. But uh, whether we can move the halls of Congress to get them to do something to rein in the agency on that remains to be seen. So, I guess that's kind of an introduction as to what's been going on this month before Christmas. Looks like we're going to have a busy New Year. Sounds like a full plate. Yeah, it one is. Of the things, one of the things that uh, has been, China got a little bit of eyebrows raised over here on some of the group pages that we deal with. Um, there was a little bit of a chatter about it a couple of weeks back, um, and that was the issue about uh, these, is it a, is it a uh, dispatch service or is it brokering without license? And 
gentleman that runs the American, I think it's American Independent Property Brokers Association, which is the uh, association for a lot of the smaller brokers, uh, kind of caused up a little bit of a, a windstorm, and uh, it looks like he may have gotten gotten some traction on it because uh, the FMCSA actually put a link on their website for people to report um, these type of, of uh, operations uh, and stuff like that. So I wanted to... Once I, I I talked about it briefly, but I really didn't really get into it because I was waiting to see. Let me get Henry on and let him. Uh, let's maybe let him deal with that, and and that way everybody can be fully clear on what what to do or uh, how to go about it. And and if you could maybe even talk about some consequences on penalties that may uh, if if someone decides to continue on in that operation and they if they happen to be found that they are operating a as as a uh, broker without a license yeah i i i i know of, of james lamb and uh i understood that uh, uh he had brought this to the forefront it's it's a lingering issue that has been around for a long time and there's a heightened awareness of it now that uh the bond has gone to $75,000 and everybody's attention is focused on what is brokerage and what isn't brokerage. Uh, I think the best place to start is with the definition of what is a, a broker. And a broker is anyone who arranges for transportation for compensation and is not, the old definition was, is not uh, a motor carrier or a ordinary part of a motor carrier. Now, of course, they have changed the definition of a motor carrier, say that a motor carrier, if he's going to arrange for compensation for uh, an outside carrier, has to be either a broker or a freight forwarder. But what is left of that definition, if you boil it down, is that if a salesman is part of an ordinary uh, ordinary business of a motor carrier, he doesn't have to have a broker's license. But to be part of an ordinary part of a motor carrier's business, you'd have to work as a commission salesman for one motor carrier. The agency has always defined someone who arranges for compensation for transportation as a broker when they could choose among multiple carriers in terms of for whom they provided service. So in other words, if I ran a dispatch shack and I said, look, I'm going to work uh, uh, for Muhammad Trucking and Seton Trucking and four or five other guys, and they're all going to pay me a commission, but basically I'm going to take the calls and decide who to give the freight to, I would be a property broker, even though I wasn't necessarily handling the money. And that's where that's where I think the uh, the confusion breaks down, because folks have always thought, well, gee, purpose of the broker regulations is even with increased bond is to keep a middleman from intercepting the money as it goes from the shipper to the carrier, so that if the dispatch service is uh, getting a commission on the back end and isn't intercepting the money, then it shouldn't be a broker and shouldn't be in violation of the law. But the law is broader than that. It says that even though you're getting a com you're not getting involved in the money chain, but you're representing multiple carriers, as a lot of dispatch services do, and you've got the ability to decide to give this load to Muhammad and this load to Hank, that you are a acting in a broker capacity. So I think that's where the confusion comes in. And there are, in fact, some decisions in which the courts have considered that, and they have gone as aggressively as to say that, you know, quite possibly even a dispatch service or even a load board uh, uh, could get close to being considered a property broker. Of course, a load board says they're not making a decision to whom to give the property, but they are the load, but they are arranging for transportation for compensation. So I think what James Lamb's doing is, is focusing some attention on the fact that 
folks who didn't get the $75,000 bond are getting out of the payment loop and acting as uh, a, a percentage on a percentage commission basis for providing a dispatch function for multiple carriers. And indeed, uh, under uh, some pretty good precedent, that constitutes brokerage. Does that pretty well summarize uh, the issue as you see it, uh, uh, Rico? Clears it up for me. Um, we got a couple of people that may have some, we may have some people that have some questions about it that may call in or whatnot, but we got a, got a few guys on the line right now that's got a couple of questions, so we'll go to those guys and we'll just let that stand, uh, table that for now if that okay. comes back up. Um, right, and we're going to go to Tony. Tony is calling in. Tony, you're on live with Rico and Hank. How can we help? How you doing, Rico and Hank? Hi, Tony. Hey, Tony. Uh, uh, I got a question trying to get some clarity on the 34-hour restart setup that's going on now, you know, trying to read between the lines and just get an idea of what exactly did this provision change. I mean, do you still have to go one to five? Did they take out the one to five, or did they take out the once a week? What did they really revise? Well, as I understand it, the... Uh uh, uh, several things are are gone. I, I guess it's my understanding that we fall back to the uh, uh, old uh, seventy hours in an eight day period requirement, and that you uh, can uh, can get a thirty four hour uh, you can get a thirty four hour restart without having to do the two uh, overnight periods, and that you can get a thirty four hour restart in short of uh, uh, every eight days. So, you know, when when you go back to the status quo ante, uh, a person running to the West Coast uh, could burn up his uh, 70 hours in his eight days and uh, take his restart not on a, a, a Friday to a Sunday every week, but uh, maybe take it on a, a uh, uh, get to the West Coast, take 34 hours, off and get a clean clock for coming home, and I think that uh, it, it, if it if its intent was to take out the, the modification that was put in, uh, you know, a few years ago that made it more draconian, and it went back to the status quo ante. That is how it was in the old days. You, you would still have be able to take a 34-hour restart, but the restrictive aspects of it. The, Two overnight periods, in fact, you can only take it every uh, every eight days would be gone. So you get the flexibility that you had in the old uh, in the old rule back. Now, uh, you know, I haven't uh, I haven't really uh, uh, studied the uh, the effect of it, but I, I, it was my understanding that when uh, the HOS group was uh, was lobbying for the repeal, what they were really saying is that the uh, agency had gone a bridge too far when they started enforcing uh, the draconian aspects of that uh, circadian rhythm that said the 34-hour restart had to be, uh, you know, two overnight periods. And when they started saying that, you know, you couldn't uh, couldn't take it but once every eight days. And I think those are the two issues that uh, ATA and the other groups were going to uh, Congress to say, hey, uh, this is what is causing the productivity dump. Uh, so uh, I think that's what the agency is is having to go back and uh, and restudy and rejustify. Uh, it's a it's a hiatus that we have here. I was looking a little bit at the you know, some of the press reports on the on the rule today, and I think CCJ did a. Uh, you know, a very good job on it. <clears throat> that the agency is under some really quick time limits to get up two test groups, try to uh, see who who's the tired or driver, the guy that has to adhere to the uh, uh, full uh, circadian rhythm every eight day deal, or uh, or the people operating under the old rule, and uh, apparently OAG, which is a uh, uh, you know, a, a government entity and oversight group is uh, going to be looking at the agency study to be sure that uh, the books aren't cooked and that uh, uh, everything is done in a scientific manner. 
it's interesting that things like the government, rather than calling a ball or strike, will say, let's go study it again. And it looks like we've got yet another study. But uh, uh, as as best I can tell, uh, President Obama signed the, the thing today, and uh, the reports are that while the agency technically has to come out with a, a federal register notice, that it's, it's the law effective immediately. And and just and just the and just the horseback on that um what what Paint was just talking about as far as, far as I understand the law as well as far as the thirty minute provision the thirty minute break I believe that that still is going to be a requirement um during the uh, fourteen hour period you need to have a thirty minute break for eight hours it it's a it's a thirty minute rest rest break. Yeah, well, yeah, it was uh, yeah, it was originally deemed as a meal break, but yeah, you have to take thirty thirty minutes off. Uh, I ha- I have not uh, I have not heard of that being repealed, but uh, I haven't I haven't made a close study of it. All right, Tony, does that that, that answers your question? Yes, sir. That that cleared it up. I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. We'll put you back on hold. All right, thank and. You. Thank you. Thank you. And we got another caller, uh, Hank, calling in from, looks like, the Atlanta area. I'm going to do you on live with Rico and Hank. How can we help? Hey, how you doing, Rico? How you doing, Hank? Doing well. I got a question about factoring. Uh, I just sent, submitted a 90 days letter to tell them I'm getting out of the factoring. And I guess they're calling in. I guess they're trying to scare tactic or whatever, talking about who's gonna. We're not gonna release you because there's forty thousand dollars of money that needs to be cleared first, and all that stuff. So I just needed to know uh, uh, what's my option. You know, I'm trying to uh, get out of factoring because it's not worth a penny, and uh, uh, it's pretty much you do all the work. I find out since I uh, since I told them I was gonna stop that they. They don't send the bill on time. You know, I have to go back and call the customer, ask them why they didn't pay yet, and they'll be telling me they didn't receive the paperwork. Well, that's my uh, question, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you got, you got, you got a good question. Let me start off by by saying that in in my practice, I represent a number of factors, and I will say that not all factors are equal. Uh, there are uh, there are some that uh, you play hell getting away from, uh, and there are uh, uh, yours is not the first complaint that uh, people have had with a, with a factor. Uh, in the little book that uh, Rico has mentioned several times, uh, protecting motor carry interest in contracts, I have a section on the contractual provisions that are in factoring agreement that uh, you need to really look carefully at before you sign an agreement. One of the mm-hmm. things, one of the techniques that uh, is hidden in some factoring agreements is this real difficulty that uh, a uh, motor carrier has getting, getting out of the agreement. Uh, and there are provisions in the agreements uh, I'll run through a couple of them, and you can see if, if any of them are being used against you. One of the agreements that sometimes will show up is, look, you've assigned all of your receivables to us, and uh, we have to agree to release you from that agreement, and we'll only release you if, uh, uh, A, all of your indebtedness is paid. Uh, there may be a rear-end uh, um penalty for getting out of the agreement. Sometimes they'll say uh, that, you know, you agreed to give us all of your uh, uh, bills uh, for a year or you agreed to give uh, to factor at least uh, $200,000 with us or you agreed that if you cut the the, uh, agreement short, you pay a penalty. Now, you know, all three of those things can be used against you because typically the factor's got a 20% holdback, and typically the factor has got what's called recourse financing, which means that, uh, you know, uh, 
it could very well be 60 or 90 days before he says he's collected all the bills. And if he's not going to turn you loose to make money uh, 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 so that, you know, all of your accounts receivable are factored, you can't get money to operate. He, can't, he won't turn you loose until you're paid in full. You're kind of in a no-man's land. Uh, a lot of folks, a lot of folks have uh, combat that, have gone to yet another factor. Uh, maybe somebody who is uh, uh, more even-handed and had the other factor go in and buy out the other guy, which says, hey, we'll take responsibility for all of the indebtednesses, let you get clean of a guy who's hadn't factored well with you to go to someone else. Now, that's not a desirable situation because, you know, you're really having to, uh, maybe you're giving up 3 to 5% of your revenue to factor with with the factor A, and you don't want to just turn around and have to give that up again. But uh, uh, typically the factor's approach is you wouldn't be with us if you had the money to pay for your own receivables. So unless you got a fistful of money, uh, we're going to hang on to you. Unfortunately, there are some people who uh, uh, who uh, uh, pretend to tell factors, here are 101 ways to, once you get a client, hold on to them. And I don't think that's a very fair business practice. I, uh, I, I really, uh, you know, abhor that. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, inevitably, uh, when you sign a factoring agreement, you pledge your receivables, uh, they have uh, filed a UCC-1 on you. They have sent a letter to all of your customers that says, you now have to pay us until we tell you to stop paying us. And, you know, for a small guy, it's kind of hard to go to court and uh, and, uh, and and fight them over that. So uh, there's no easy solution to what you've got. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll give you my email address. You can send me uh, some of the facts of what you've got, and maybe I can, I can advise you based upon who you're factoring with and what's involved, what it's going to take to get you free. Yeah, but the the real takeaway to anybody that's on the line is you're pretty well bound by what you what you sign, and factoring agreements uh, uh, are not necessarily fair. Yeah, say that again. But uh, give me the name of the book and and the email address. Uh, I'm working on the plan to get out in February. I got a couple more months, so I hope I can find a way to finance myself. To get out, pay my own receivable, and and, and uh, because I just want to get out of there. Well, I mean, let's 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 face facts. The, uh, it's it's unfortunate that we're in a business that is capital intensive. We're in a business in which the shippers who could very easily go out, pay you in thirty days at very little cost because they've got great big lines of credit, push that downstream on you to 30 or 60 days. And as a result, you have to pay uh, in the distress of the uh, market a much higher fee to, uh, to them. I mean, you know, a, a, a General Electric could very easily get what amounts to, uh, you know, 1% or 2% money and you're paying three or four times that amount and then having to take the recourse liability. It just is a, it's an unfair, it's an unfair situation. But uh, uh, having said that, uh, we can't, uh, we can't change that. Uh, a lot of small carriers need factors and, and, and good factors can provide reasonable services in terms of spotting bad credit risk and, uh, you know, offering a, a plethora of other services that uh, uh, mm -hmm. can uh, help make that fee uh, a little more tolerable. But uh, uh, I know what you said. You said one thing that caught my attention, which is that you get customers who say they are not paying because they didn't get the invoice on time. And I have heard repeated complaints from small carriers that, their factoring arrangements are like 
Oh, let's say 2% the first 30 days, but at the 35th day, it goes into an extra percent. It just so happens that they can't get any of their invoices paid within the first 30 days. And when they start looking around, they realize that the invoices are not even getting to the customers on time. And, you know, I've had people complain that there's some factors who are intentionally slow-walking slow sending out the receivables to uh, incur that extra percent when they go over the, the first 30 days of the second 30. They do. They do, because any time you look at you see the anybody that go over the 30 days, there's another $12 here, $10 there, $5 here. And uh, if you look at it, you even better off going with the uh, quick pay with the broker. So, because you get your money at the same time as the factor, and they're taking probably about the same amount, you know, and and you don't have to worry about the recourse because when there's a recourse, they wash their hand. They be like, "Well, you need to call the customer." Yeah, yeah and that's that's what's the that's what's the tough thing about the uh, the financing now. You know, uh, uh, the better factors, and I'd like to think that I represent the better factors will tell me, well, Hank, that no recourse provision doesn't really come into play because we've got our act down good enough to where uh, we our customers have to buy buy back very little of our invoices uh, because there's just not a whole lot of, of default. We stay on our bad debts in a way that the individual carriers couldn't. But otherwise, the ordinary factoring agreement isn't a question of they bought your credit risk. They're just mm-hmm. loaning you the money, and if the guy doesn't ultimately pay, uh, that's what the reserve's for. So, you know, if there is a major bankruptcy in the industry, uh, the factor dings your uh, reserve for it, and they, all of a sudden, you know, you got the bad debt back on your side of the ledger. And, <laughs> you know, th- that can be... That can, that can be a problem. That's certainly one good reason for uh, if you are going to factor your receivables, be sure that you're with a factor who is doing an excellent job of uh, advising you to whom to extend credit and who not to. The better factors uh, will very quickly uh, tell you don't buy that guy. They won't buy that guy's bad debt if he's a, if he's collateralized. All right, All right. That, that that gets your question answered. I'm gonna do. We'll get you if you listen closely. Yeah, yeah, we'll you, thank, thank you very much. Thank you for everything. Sure. All right, we'll put you back on. We'll put you back on hold. And um, the Mr. Seaton's website is transportationlaw.net. Hank, you want to go ahead and give your email out if you want? Yeah, it's it's H is in Henry, E is in Edward, S E A T O N at A O L. Or if you go on my website. Uh, you'll see that there there's an email address there for me at Transportation Law that you can you can reach me as well. So it's probably just best, uh, you know, if people are uh, are otherwise busy and can't take it down, just remember TransportationLaw.net, and they can reach me uh, at the email shown on that address. And just as a reminder for everyone, uh, there's also a link on Hank's website where you can actually go and purchase the book, Protecting Motor Carriers' Interests and Contracts. And mm-hmm. also, you can spend, man, you can get lost and spend an entire day on Hank's website. There is a plethora of knowledge and articles and, and uh, other um, uh, uh, PDFs and um, PowerPoint presentations that are on the website that will answer almost, I mean, I think it covers the gamut, but there's an excellent there's a excellent source and a wealth of information on that website. So transportationlaw.net, I suggest you put that in your favorite, save it to your browser favorites, and just when you have different questions or whatever that come up, that one of your first stops you might want to go to is transportationlaw.net. Um, just want to remind everyone that is on the line. We got quite a few callers on the line tonight. If you have a question for Mr. Seaton, go ahead and press one. We're, we're, we're hitting about that, uh, 20 minute mark left in the show. You can go ahead and press one. We'll get your call screen, get you right up where you can talk directly to Hank. Um, one more thing, Hank, that another kind of hotbed thing that's been going on this week. And if maybe you might be able to touch on a few key points is this, uh, some 
of the pitfalls that that someone may might run into doing a lease purchase. Lease purchase. A lot of people are wanting to uh, try to better their positions in life. Want to go ahead and, and, and try to maybe uh, jump out there and um, for whatever their their own personal reason is, and, and they may you know see that lease purchase is the best way to go to owning, uh, getting into the ownership position of uh, owning a truck. But uh, but with that lease purchase thing, you know, um, it may seem real easy to get into it and, and really difficult to get out of. Um, maybe you can highlight a couple of things on those lease purchase deals that we might need to be aware of. Yeah, I mean, I think I think a lease purchase it can be a win-win situation for a carrier and for uh, the uh, uh, the guy who wants to be an owner operator. Frankly, I think as I've mentioned before. Uh, carriers that follow the independent contractor model uh, are looking for people not only who can drive a truck but who can be a uh, a logistics partner. I think the smart ones are not looking to uh, make their money over the over the back end of the owner operator. They're looking for someone who's going to get miles and get home and take good care of equipment and. Uh, uh, and uh, get a uh, a commensurate portion of the revenue to pay off the truck and and uh, you know have a piece of the American dream at the end of the at the end of the deal. Uh, I think the the market for independent contractors is probably getting much better than a long time, and that's probably because of the driver shortage. Uh, I know that there are certainly carriers who would like to take drivers and and encourage them to become owner-operators because they think they'll take better care of the equipment and they'll uh, uh, be uh, uh, be more likely to uh, uh, take that skin in the game to provide uh, to provide a good service. Uh, and it seems to be the general thought that there's a, a difference between a guy who who feels like he's working for himself and a guy who's working for the man, so that. Uh, the independent contractor model is something to, uh, uh, to to be cherished. Now, in terms of recognizing that all lease-to-own agreements aren't the same, there are a couple of things that I would suggest you look at. Uh, number one, and, and probably foremost, is if you can get a piece of equipment that's got a reasonable guarantee, uh, so that you're not getting stuck with a lemon law or you're not uh, uh, in the kind of situation in which you have such a little reserve that all of a sudden one major breakdown and you're you're stuck uh, without having a, a means of earning an income for two or three weeks while you're trying to get the thing fixed. That can put an owner-operator upside down. A guy who's who's undercapitalized or who has a, a a lemon creates a problem. So I guess selecting your equipment, uh, maybe trying to get uh, uh, a limited warranty on the on the used equipment is uh, is something that that is that I think is is important because uh, particularly when the independent contractor is under undercapitalized and older equipment breaks down, that's a problem. Uh, another thing that I think is is particularly important is people that do lease to own uh, want to keep the title in their name, and you need to be very sure that while the title is in their name, that uh, you're getting accurate accounting for it, and that you're building equity in the truck, because. You know, if you're buying it through a company or with a company, you need portability. And by that, I mean, let's say that, uh, you know, somebody says, look, I, um, uh, Muhammad, I'll set you uh, up in a uh, up in a uh, uh, three-year-old Pete, and you'll pay this amount of money as long as you're leased on to X, Y, and Z, and they're going to uh, withhold the fee. Well, you may not want to stay with X, Y, and Z. You want to be sure that, uh, you know, if it's a four-year payout, that each month uh, that truck's getting a little bit older. But you want to know that if you want to buy buy out the truck and go somewhere else, 
uh, you can uh, build some equity in it, and you've got what's called portability. I have seen situations in which guys get into a lease that really are leases, and they're not really leases to own because, uh, you know, four, four years in, five years in, whatever, they still owe a mountain of money on the thing. You probably want to get a, a lease-to-own thing at a reasonable rate that you think you can pay so that you can look forward to the date at which you've got the title to the truck, you've got some equity left in it, and, uh, you know, you've paid your bills in the meantime, and now now you've built a little something. And I, I think that I think that portability is, is really a key. I see in a lot of... Uh, contracts that uh, are company-sponsored, they want you to build up a maintenance reserve. They want to take a maintenance reserve out of the, out of the truck payment. And, uh, you know, some owner-operators say, well, uh, man, I, you know, I can't afford that maintenance reserve. Uh, and then from the carrier's point of view, they say, well, you know, something is going to go wrong with that truck. Sooner or later, unless the guy builds up a maintenance reserve, uh, he's, he's going to end up having to come back to us and say, what I do now, uh, boss, my truck's broken down. I can't afford to get it paid. So I think the repairs on the trucks are, are really a key. And then I think that the other thing is I'd look into the references of the the, uh, the company providing the used trucks or the independent or the, or the carrier that has the lease to own program. I'd like to see how many of your uh, owner operators uh, end up being title holders and come back and buy another truck. What is your success rate? Uh, it's just kind of like, uh, uh, you know, if you're, uh, uh, if you're going to uh, do much of anything, you're going to want to see, okay, what the, What's the Better Business Bureau score on this guy? Uh, does he have a success record? I know I've got I've got one client that uh, uh, when the uh, when the owner operators at the end get the uh, get the title of the truck, uh, you know they send out a newsletter congratulate uh, congratulating him, uh, you know, on the successful completion. They really genuinely uh, want to have a reputation in the industry of success so that more people will come to them. And then I, occasionally I'll see an independent contractor uh, guy come to me and he's with somebody I've never heard of and I look at the lease and it's poorly written and uh, the guy comes to me and he says, you know, uh, I, hear, I see in this lease I'm supposed to get uh, uh, weekly settlements and I'm supposed to be able to know how I'm doing, but they refuse to give it to me and they haven't given them to me in the past six months. And then, you know, all of a sudden they'll say, and we got eight other people that they've treated the same way. Well, you know, you need to go into it with your eyes wide open. Uh, uh, you know, what is, the, what is the company's reputation? Uh, does, the lease, uh, uh, does the lease look like the, the, the company knows what they're doing? Uh, and, uh, you know, I think you just uh, need to choose. There are plenty of, there are plenty of reputable people with lease to own uh, provisions out here. Just choose wise. I think it's a and, key, it, and uh, it would probably it would probably be advisable if it's if possible. One thing that I always tell people is see if the company will give you a copy of the lease before you get into it to have it reviewed by an attorney. Uh, oh, absolutely, absolutely. Nobody should sign. Nobody should sign. Should should sign a dotted line until they say, "Look, I want to have uh, I want to have my lawyer look at it," uh, and you know, you got to. You got to. The other thing is, if you're going to do a lease to own with the company, you need to be sure that their modus operandi fits your lifestyle. I mean, uh, right. you know, if you if you want to be gone, uh, if if to make your nuts, you're going to have to be away from home uh, all but one weekend a month, and it's a long distance of gone two week uh, deal. You need to know that before you sign up for the truck. Uh, and right. you know you need to, to to judge the to judge the truck by the uh, by by what kind of pressure you're going to put on it, what kind of miles you're going to run on it. 
Okay. All right, Hank, we got a couple more callers in here. Want to get a question in with you? So we got a little bit of time left. We're going to jump over and go to Mark. Mark is calling in. Mark, you're on live with Rico and Hank. How can we help? Uh, thanks for taking my call tonight, gentlemen. Uh, I had a question. Actually, um, I'm, I'm currently in a, uh, a lease. Can you guys hear me? Sure. Yes, sir. Okay. I, I'm currently in a lease with one of the uh, the national carriers, actually uh, international as it is now. Um, and I'm finding out that the uh, the revenue doesn't quite meet my expectation. The lifestyle is close, but not quite there. Um, listening to the conversation you guys had over the past 10 minutes, debating between trying to make the lease portable, and I believe that it is, um, or just walking away altogether somehow. Um, why don't you shed a little light? My, my ideal preference would be to walk away altogether so I don't have to worry about reporting back to the first guy where the truck is, what it's doing, how it's doing, and just kind of start fresh with a new truck. Start fresh with a new truck and a new company. Yeah, I knew the new company. I, I, I'd like to, under an ideal situation, go with a company where I get to uh, have more discretion over how I run, where I run, and when I run. Does your current lease track to a residual so that you know uh, if you quit today what the, uh, what you'd have to pay for the truck? I have not seen that. Um, I get weekly settlements. Shows how much money I've earned and, and what okay, being paid well, out. Typically, 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 yeah, you would get a weekly settlement, and the settlement would show what your earnings were, what your deductions were, and let's say you're paying thirteen hundred dollars a month for the truck. That's mm-hmm. fine, but they they're keeping an escrow on you, and you've got an escrow balance, so right. that if if you quit today, they'd have forty five days to uh, level up with you. And hopefully you get some of your escrow back. Uh, the, you know, if you uh, if you do have portability, uh, then each month it's kind of like a, a mortgage on a house. Each month uh, you make a, a, a interest payment, and a portion of it should go to principal, so that over time you build equity in the truck the way you build equity in a house. So right. that should mean that. If you wanted to leave today, uh, you know, if it started off that you you were going to pay uh, uh, $45,000 for the used truck and you've been in it two years, you'd like to think that, you know, you now had to pay thirty one fifty or something for it. And in any event, if you look at the lease and see what the truck is worth, uh, mm-hmm. if you buy it and you've got some idea of what the used truck prices are, you can see whether you're upside down on it. Right. Okay. I follow you. And and you know, if you're if you're upside down on it, then you you know, you may need to go and sit and say, Hey guys, I think the truck is uh, I think I can sell the truck for uh for twenty nine and it's worth uh thirty one. Uh you've got two thousand dollars in the uh in the in, in my escrow. Uh, let's say we walk away friends, uh, that may uh, it may ring their bell. As a matter of fact, <laughs> most, I'd say most carriers uh, don't relish going out and trying to pursue uh, owner-operators on, on deals that just didn't quite make it. You know, right. selling an owner-operator over $5,000 is uh, there's not a lot of money in it from for for their point of view. They can't find a lawyer that that's really particularly interested in taking that. Right. So there's not there's not a whole lot of interest in them chasing it. I think I think too that uh uh they get uh, you know, they get situations in which they feel like an owner operator has really uh, not treated them fairly, and has has not uh, uh, you know not lived up to his end of the bargain. I think in that case they they uh, they may very well come back to the owner operator, and it just kind of depends on, on on it kind of just kind of depends uh, on, on where you are and how 
how the, the thing is written. If you're with a large national company, I would imagine you have some portability. And obviously, uh, you know, they a whole lot rather uh, you come turn in the truck and then have to chase you all over creation to find it, worry about placards and bingos and all kinds of things like that. Yeah, there's, yeah. I do remember from the contract, there's language written into it that uh, if I wanted to drive it elsewhere, I could. I just need to remove the identifi- identifying information. Um, so that sounds like it might be. Um, I was actually speaking with... Uh, yeah, well, you may, very well, you may very well have total portability, but if you do, are you making your payments to the carrier, to a carrier affiliate, or are you making your payments to a, uh, a leasing company? The, um, the tr- am I allowed to speak, to say the truck carrier's name? Um, well, it doesn't really matter, but I mean, you know, are you, are you okay. making your, are you making your I, lease payments to somebody like Associates Finance and, and the trucking company and somebody like Conway, uh, or is it, uh, is it a question where the trucking company is uh, putting the trucks out, out to I, the, I, the title? I'll be, a st- I run for Swift. I pay, make the payments to a Swift leasing to a separate company, um, and they've made the arrangements on behalf of me to um, PACAR. They make the, 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 oh, they make the payments on behalf of you to PACAR. So what Correct. they've done is they, they're they on the paper to PACAR, and they've subleased the truck to you. Exactly. I understand that. But uh, the, the question is... Uh, Usually, usually those kinds of deals, I don't know about yours, but usually those kinds of deals are, hey, look, uh, you know, we're going to make the guarantees to uh, to pack car as long as you're driving for us. But now, if you want to go uh, lease on to Schneider, uh, get Schneider to satisfy a pack car. I mean, you know, we're more than happy to get out from under any obligation to pack car uh, if Schneider or somebody else will satisfy a pack car. But ultimately, for you to go somewhere else, uh, Swift is going to want off the note right. as your guarantor. And for you to do that, you know, you would probably say you don't want to work for Smith, uh, Swift, but you can take that truck to to, to somebody else. Uh, you know, you probably you'd still be stuck with the running out the equity in the truck until you get it and finding someone else who who, who floats you both better to be a guarantor. Or go to the bank and finance it for whatever the residual is. But in that case, it is a track lease, and uh, I'm fairly certain that Packard is is uh, is tracking to to a, a you know a residual. Here's the pink slip, and uh, you know, All right. making some assumptions. Real quickly, we got one more caller left with a question, but I'm gonna do a little bit of housekeeping, house cleaning before we go to our last caller. I just want to remind everyone on the line that, of course, Kevin Rutherford does his show every uh, weekday from Wednesday through Friday at noon. Uh, you can get Kevin Rutherford's rather regular show that comes on on the Satellite Radio channel. Uh, you can start calling calling in at um, uh, at noon Wednesday through uh, Wednesday through Friday. I want to remind everyone that tomorrow, Chad Bobbitt has his show, Brokers and Beyond, and on Tuesdays, Kenny Long has. Trucking with Authority. Two podcasts coming on board, which is Kim Cochran, and um, she has Destination Health. And uh, I think that pretty much wraps up the house thing that I had to do. Um, come back. I was coming back to come back to get the last caller, and George seems to have fallen off the line. Um, but I guess that wraps it up. Mr. Seaton, you got anything you want to say in closing? we got one minute left. <laughs> No, uh, I, I think I wish everybody a, uh, a, a Merry Christmas, and uh, let's, uh, let's all pray for our, for our country, and uh, uh, we've got some uh, turbulent times ahead, and I think just a Merry Christmas to all is all I've got to say. Yes, sir, and I think before the uh, probably won't get a chance to talk to you till, till uh, the first of the year, so we'll just go ahead and wish you a Happy New Year as well. Okay, okay. All right. Thanks, Mr. Stephen. We appreciate it again. Thanks, everybody, for calling in. This was Rico Muhammad on the Racing Lanes Podcast.
Mr. Henry Seaton is our guest speaker tonight, Hanging with Hank. You would like, you can go back later on, and I'll have this uh, episode available for download probably in about 45 seconds after the podcast. I'd just like to thank everyone again for their support, and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Thanks for joining us on Rates and Lanes. If you like what you heard here, leave us a rating and review on iTunes or listen to our other shows at audioroad.letstruck.com. To get in touch with our tribe, call us at 855-800-FUEL. That's 855-800-3835. Thanks for joining us for the ride down the audio road.